Hey friends, is it even possible to have a nuanced and extended conversation with anyone today, right? Well, our guest today says that it is, and he's working for it. You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 307, Corey Nathan and Remembering the Humanity. Way there. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, I haven't said this in a while, so I'll say it now. I don't believe in coincidences. I think if you're here, maybe there's something in this conversation that you can take away, you can ponder, you can meditate on, you can think about, ask the Lord about, and uh, it will help you in your walk. That's kind of our goal. So I hope that it does. Uh, friends, when you enjoy this conversation, as you're listening, someone comes to mind, you say, I've had that conversation with so-and-so, uh, just do me a favor, send them a text or shoot them a message on Facebook or how, Instagram. I guess people use Instagram that way. I don't know. Uh, but you, whatever works for you, just send them a message and say, Hey, you got to listen to this and share the show. That is the absolute best way. It's the number one way that we grow. Downloads were up this week, so I like that. So some of you are doing it. Thanks for doing that. Um, and of course, if, as always, if you're interested in supporting the show uh, financially and you can do that, go to halfwaytherepodcast.com. You can hit that Patreon button and support the show. Thanks to those of you who do that already. I appreciate you very, very much every single month. So, all right, let's get into it. I'm excited to have this conversation. We've already been uh, just chatting a little bit, and I, I can tell we're going to have a lot of fun. And it's going to be very entertaining. Our guest, he's a businessman. He's a theater nerd. I didn't tell him I was going to call him a theater nerd, but he's into theater. Uh, it's he's all a, good. He's a fellow <laughs> podcaster, uh, husband and, and father. Uh, he's also passionate about creating space in the public sphere uh, to talk about politics and religion and take that away from, you know, the screamers, as he calls them. I love that, um, who dominate those conversations. Man, we could use a little bit of that. Our guest is Corey Nathan. Corey, welcome to Halfway There. I'm glad to have you. Eric, I appreciate you having me on, man. It's great to, you know, talk to you in person here, so to speak. It is. We've connected on Twitter a little bit, and I'm excited to just hear a little more of your story. And uh, sounds like it's kind of interesting. So we'll we'll dive into that, and it'll it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, there's more to you though, Corey, than just the you know big labels that I trotted out, uh, including <laughs> theater nerd, uh, for for. Uh, for, you know, to, to you and kind of what you're doing. So tell me a little bit more about who you are and, um, you know, where God has you right now. You know, I, I appreciate that. So you just reminded me that it was something I haven't really discussed too much is what I've done uh, with theater. I grew up kind of in the New York theater scene, producing theater, yeah. uh, you know, off Broadway, off, off Broadway and, and all that came out to LA, did the same thing. But one of the most enriching endeavors I've been involved with was a theater ministry. Now, to be honest, uh, that was kicked off technically on September 11th, 2001. I went to a prayer vigil that night. I was a baby Christian. And I met the worship pastor, the church that we were going to for the first time. And just, he was asking me about my background. I, I was still, you know, very much involved in the theater scene in LA at that time. And uh, he said, oh, you know, we have a theater ministry. We have a, uh, no, he called it a drama ministry. And in my yeah. New York theater snob mind, I'm thinking, man, what could be even worse than like community theater? It's like <laughs> church theater. There's no way. So I set up all these barriers to uh, Pastor Pastor Peter. And uh, I said, well, if we were going to do that kind of thing, I'd want to train every person that was even remotely interested in method acting for at least a year before we ever touched a script. And he, Peter, to his credit, he goes, that's a great idea. And I'm like, that's a terrible <laughs> idea. What are, you, what are you talking about? You're but, like, wait you know, a minute. No, no. <laughs> so we literally did like a, a year of, of method and classical training. And then we did a year just of scene study, uh, applying the techniques and stuff before we ever got in front of audiences. So the next, I don't know, 10, 15 years, we were doing, to, to use a phrase from uh, from a ministry that, that really uh, influenced me, especially in those early years, we were using theater and film as a way to engage today's culture and conversations that count. Mm. We weren't like doing the, hey, uh, the gospel has to be clearly preached kind of a thing. It's, it was more the approach that you would think of with J.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, where we were doing, we were bringing great stories to life and trying to breathe 
really uh, new life into these great stories, whether it was Shakespeare, Tennessee Williams, or Anton Chekhov. And then by virtue of the fact that a bunch of Bible thumpers were doing Chekhov or Tennessee Williams or Odette or Moliere, whoever it was that we were doing, we were able to engage our church community and the surrounding community. And then sometimes we even brought, uh, I'm about 30 miles north of LA. Um, so a, a lot of our plays we brought down for a run in some uh, literally underground theaters in LA. And uh, the best, I, I, there were so many great parts about it, but some of my favorite parts were going out for coffee, going out for beers afterwards uh, in the surrounding area in Hollywood and talking about, <laughs> so why are a bunch of Christians doing, you know, Oscar Wilde plays, <laughs> you there know, you and yeah. led to some great conversations. But uh, anyway, that's kind of a side note. Yeah. So I, um, as I uh, alluded to, I grew up in an observant Jewish family. Uh, we were going to an Orthodox synagogue, but I became a Christian in my late twenties. Uh, so that's uh, fr from a religious uh, theological trajectory. I understand it's, it's a pretty unique one. Yeah. So. Well, that, you know, uh, it's fascinating. So this is the way God works sometimes. Uh, sometimes I, I get lots of similar stories. And so I've had uh, episode 300 recently was Andrew Clavin. Do you know Andrew Clavin? He he was. That sounds familiar. He's at the Daily Wire with uh, okay. Shapiro. And anyway, I used to love his stuff when I was doing politics and uh, and and uh, faith. Uh, and so, you know, similar kinds of thing, although much later, I think so, that he found Christ. But anyway, so I, but I'm here for it because this is what I'm trying to say. I love those stories because they're different than the sort of Midwest. I grew up in church stories that I have and that I hear a, a, an awful lot as well, which I'm totally fine with. I just like the, uh, like the uniqueness. So I, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so, but I do want to go back to the theater thing just a little bit, because I think what you said there was really fascinating doing these non-Christian plays, if you will, right. Open the doors for conversations. And that so often it, I think if we would just be open to having those conversations ourselves and engage the culture instead of attack the culture, uh, perhaps we would be seen a little bit differently and also be more effective in kinds of our, our discussions and, and relationships with, with the people that we interact with. Right, right. We have uh, oftentimes we bring an agenda uh, to right. whatever medium we might be playing in. And we're not doing that medium or ourselves any great service when we do that. Yeah. You know, I was at a concert last night at the Hollywood Bowl, and it's that's a whole other story. I don't really go to a ton of con concerts like that. Um, I think after being locked down for two years, some parts of my brain just got atrophied. I'm not used <laughs> to being around flashing lights and loud sounds and lots right. of people. But that aside, it occurred to me, not occurred to me, I was reminded that there are these transcendent things that we all long for. The, the, yes. C.S. Lewis would talk about it as a God-shaped void, you know? But there are these things that bind us together as humanity, whether it's having a shared community experience like that, um, having shared symbols or, or sounds and, and songs that were all uh, lifted together and enjoying that experience together, or when we go to a play and something rouses something in us, it's the questions that a great playwright is trying to deal with in a poetic way. It's the it's the longings that mm -hmm. that he's trying to um, satisfy or address or name, you know. And that's that's where the opportunity is. I think the opportunity for us is just to engage on that level with others who desire these types of experiences, who, who are asking these types of questions without even really being able to articulate those questions. Yeah. And not that it's like a trick per se to, to lead them to Christ. Like I can't do that anyway. Christ will do that. <laughs> you right. know? Um, yes. I, I figured out recently. So this is uh, we've been going to this new church and I love this pastor, but he was, he, he was talking a little bit about this culture thing and you know, how the gospel is, is different, you know, and he was a little bit of this culture clash. And I was like, mm. so I started thinking about, this is what happens, you know, in my mind, I was wondering while he was talking, uh, but think about what's the better way, what's the way to think about the kingdom of God? Is it in conflict? Is it at war with the culture? 
I'm not sure. I don't think we see Jesus do that. Is it over the culture? I think that's one of those one of those things. No, I think what it is is it's actually amongst right the kingdom of God. What did you say? The kingdom of God is near. It's not far, uh, and knowing that, so that's what I hear you describe. Like it's we're we're amongst, and we see these threads. In you know, some somebody once said to me, um, you know, great literature can save a nation, right? Referring to Dostoevsky, and like we pull these threads that are out there in in literature or theater or movies or what whatever it is, and then have those conversations, and somehow the kingdom of God turns up, you know, within it because it was already there because it's it's within it's 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 around us. We just have to have eyes, but that's a that's a worldview shift, right? That's a that's a way of seeing. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you're onto something there. And we obviously have a lot of hints that point us in the right direction in scripture itself, whether you want to think of being in the world, but not of the world, that sort of thing. But I think there's something even, I want to take that a step further. Okay. And I think a, a lot of the, a worldview and a, a grand understanding that a lot of folks I go to church with, uh, frankly, is mistaken. And it's more informed by say a platonic or uh, Aristotelian understanding yes. of where this thing is going. And it's the separation of the physical with the spiritual as yes. if the spiritual is immaterial. But the Bible, if we're reading it, Genesis 1 and 2 to Revelation 21 and 22, um, but even more specifically at the center of time is the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the physical, the this worldly resurrection of Jesus. And you look at everything, you build it around that. It's mm. not some airy, I don't know, non-material. It's this is God's creation and he is going about redeeming it. And we're a part of that redemption project. And when Jesus was the first reach of the resurrection, he bodily, physically raised from the dead. Yes. So, there is something to, so I, I just picking up where you left off, but I, that, that's where my head's going with it. I love it. Well, yeah. you're speaking my language uh, at my grandfather's funeral. Uh, this is a couple of years ago now, 2019, I think uh, I got to do the prayer. And so I was, I was glad I didn't have to do anything else, but that was great. And I was the only one who brought up the idea of first fruits, right? Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection. Um, which I thought was interesting. I didn't realize sort of the religious culture that I'd been growing up in. I hadn't seen it in a long time. And so like seeing that and going, oh, that's right. I've been trained in a whole new way, right? A whole different kind of thinking. But anyway, okay. I love that now. So <laughs> I love what you said about uh, Plato. And I totally agree. I think many evangelical Christians are really more Gnostic than they are, um, which is influenced by Plato, than they are really... Um, influenced by the Bible. So, but you grew up in a Jewish family, right? Yes. So as you said, observant Jewish. So that is actually a really embodied uh, religious practice, right? You're always doing something physical with, with uh, something. So what was it like for you? And give me kind of that perspective and then take me into kind of how you found Christ. Okay. <laughs> Those are two potentially really long answers. So I'll try to be as uncharacteristically succinct. So I have been finding more and more meaning the older I get in how we did Judaism and, and the meaning, uh, the impact of, of Jew, being a Jew. And that is a lot of our observance was retelling, retelling the story of the people of Israel and, and what God is doing in his creation at the same time as participating in it. So the Seder is a great example we, uh, the Seder is the, like an order. It's an ordered dinner um, during, that you do during Passover. And um, it's retelling the story of Exodus. And there's a lot of uh, fun traditions. But what hits me is, as we did it this year, is I, I remember doing it as a little kid. I remember doing it, uh, the same things, having some of the same traditions as a little kid at my grandfather's house. My grandfather telling me how he did it when he was a little kid. You know, yeah. and, and, and it's, it's a continuation of telling the story of who we are as a people, not just the Nathans, my family, but the people of Israel, the people, the children of God. Right. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of what we did was similar to that, whether it was the um, extra biblical stories like the Hanukkah story or, or, you know, the high, high holy days, um, the, the prayers, I, I, like it said in the on my uh, bar mitzvah invitation, as my it started with as my father and grandfather before me, 
Mm. And, and it was, it was an indication the way, you know, Jesus sometimes would, would catch a phrase or, or the first, the top of a Psalm and, and we're hearing the rest of the Psalm without him ever having to, to re recite the entire Psalm. Kind of the way, if I said tramps like us, you know, it's, it's reminiscent of the whole born to run, right? I'm a Jersey right. boy. So, you yeah, know, yeah. that's right. Hey, I'm um, huge. I'm, I'm more a Bon Jovi than Springsteen guy, but that's just my, probably my era. <laughs> it's all good. No, Bon Jovi. Uh, he he was he was uh, closer in age to me, but yeah, yeah. Uh, Bruce's poetry, man, that really spoke to the, you know, to to where I grew up, the kind of the heart and the spirit of where I grew up. I'm, but, I'm a um, hairband guy. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. You're going to that thing you told me at, at uh, Coors Field. So yeah, that's really fun. Um, so yeah, and and now when I practice, a lot of folks aren't into what they think of as rituals or there there's different words for it. But I, I like some of that stuff. I like mm. the taking of the bread and the, the drinking of the wine. I like re retelling the story of Jesus at his last Passover before he went to the cross. Um, I appreciate that because it is, it is the redefined, the um, newly continued version of the, the people of Israel, the children of God. That, that are retelling this story and, and at the same time participating in the story of God's grand redemption project. So I've, I've really, um, I don't know if that directly answers your well, question. Okay. So yeah. Okay. I do love that by the way. I think that is one, and I don't know if this is a uniquely American problem or if it's a different, you know, in other places of the world, but we sometimes have this short sightedness about where we are in the story, right. And think that we're the most important part. And so what I love about a Seder uh, is, uh, and like you were mentioning, yeah, you know, me and my father, my grandfather before me, right. Is you're part of the big story. Right. And I think that's the invitation that scripture gives to us beginning to end. You're not, uh, just, it's not just about you. It's you are invited into this big story. And that's a whole different perspective that we get to have. I, I, that's one thing I love about, um, about the, you know, the Jewish expression of faith. Cause you get, you get so much of that. All right. So as a kid, you found some meaning in this, like this was kind of good for you, but how did you end up coming, coming to Christ? Then? That was the second part of your question. Right. Yeah. So I was always a big question asker. Uh, you uh, know, I could be in the Yom Kippur <laughs> service and reading, I didn't speak fluent, especially in that ancient Hebrew, but I'd be reading the English translation and it, it would bring up questions in me, uh, you know, even, even as a preteen, uh, I, big questions just haunted me. And I came to a point, I went through in, in my late teens, early twenties, like a lot of kids, I went through a period of a great agnosticism, even though I still observed, I kept kosher for the most part, observed all the holidays. I was still theologically, um, great agnosticism. And that stayed with me throughout my twenties. And then when uh, Lisa and I got married and we started talking about having kids, I was looking for new mentorship. I was just coming into my own in, in business and, uh, you know, thinking about being a dad, new husband, uh, wanted to be contributing to my community. So I was looking for mentorship and long story short, one of the fellas who was mentoring me was grew up Jewish, but became a Christian. So I was very, uh, I was very teachable and I was open to a lot of what he uh, brought to the table, but one thing really ticked me off. And it was like every book that he recommended was a Jesus book. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> it was like, it had like, it wasn't necessarily overtly a Jesus book, but it basically was it a Jesus because it had, it was strewn throughout every text he gave me were these quotes from the new Testament. I'm like, yeah. how, you know me, I'm a Jew. I'm not like, you know, I'm not doing that whole Jesus thing. So how to his credit, would, he gave me another Jesus book. It was called More Than a Carpenter, the uh, McDowell, oh, yeah. Josh McDowell book. Yep. And I'm like, how? It's another Jesus book, man. What are you doing? Um, he's like, just trust me. Just read the book. He, and, he, and he basically challenged me. He's like, if I know what it means to be Jewish, you know what it means to be Jewish. I know what it means to be a Christian. You have not a first clue what it means to be a Christian. So just read the book. At least we'll have something to talk about. Right now, you're just dumb. You're just ignorant. You have nothing to say, but you're empty opinion. So he was like, you know, he's, he knows I'm a Jersey boy. So he's being very curt with me. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I read a stinking book and <laughs> I will say that I found it very unpersuasive. It just ticked me off that much more, but it did open the door because 
it was the first time I read any one attempting to make an empirical case for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Oh, interesting. So at least it opened that door, and I ended up reading the bigger kind of the McDowell's bigger version of that it was um, evidence that demands a verdict. Oh, yeah. But really what happened was I went through this season that was the spring of 2000 and throughout the spring and into the summer and uh, into the early fall, I had a voracious reading uh, habit. Uh, literally, I was probably reading on average about 10 hours a day because I wanted to, once the door was open to this possibility being true, I wanted to find out, okay, what's the philosophical underpinnings of this? And those questions that I had been asking since I was a kid, what's wrong with this whole thing? How did it all get rolling? Um, are we fixing it or are we just all doomed? <laughs> you know, um, you know, big existential questions. I wanted to see if this possibility started answering those questions in a more coherent way than I had discovered prior to that time. And at the same time, I wanted to take another look at other religions and philosophies that I'd studied previously to see, okay, was I missing something? What, like, or, or just how does my Jewish theologians, my, my people, how do they answer these possibilities? And by October of that year, I had finally gotten to the point where I was persuaded about a certain cohesiveness and coherence to the set of answers to the big questions that Christian theology provided. I was reading, you know, I mentioned C.S. Lewis, but like G.K. Chesterton, F.W. Borum, mm -hmm. uh, th there were some great somewhat contemporary thinkers, like 20th century uh, thinkers that I was really drawn to and compelled by. And, um, but at that point, I, find, I didn't, I still hadn't read the New Testament. So the, the closer, you know, they, they send in the closer, the closer was Jesus. <laughs> yeah, nice. So specifically, I had, uh, I started, actually, I started, um, Hal told me, read the book of James or the, James, uh, the the letter that James wrote first. It was a good book because it, it, he, it not only opened with to the 12 tribes, basically addressing me as a Jew, yes. but it, it dealt with a very central theme that I was wrestling with. And it was uh, the faith versus works thing. And he balanced it out much better than what some of my uh, friends who were kind of evangelizing to me, how they were balancing it out. They were doing like the Romans road thing and James just yeah. dealt with it in a much more nuanced way. Um, so then I went to, I read through that real quick. And then I got to the beginning of, of the collection in Matthew one. And by Matthew five, I had, I was reading this Jesus guy. <laughs> he was given a sermon. He was given a, what I recognize as a Devar Torah, which is what the rabbi does when we read from the Torah three times a week, he gives a, you know, yeah. Devar Torah. And what I didn't connect because I wasn't familiar with the text from an academic standpoint was it was a sermon on the Mount that I was reading. So that was really the closer. It, it pulled me in. Mm. I, I couldn't put the collection down until I got to the end of, of revelation. And uh, it was either that night or the next night that the other, the, the other sticking point, the reason I didn't pray the prayer right away is because we Jews have like a structured prayer for everything, the washing of the hands and the drinking of the wine and everything has a Baruch Atah Hashem. It has like a structured prayer. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, Baruch Atah Hashem, uh, I'm a Christian now. Hey, Jesus, <laughs> like, what do I do? You know, so Hal had to teach me like, no, dude, just talk to God. It's cool. You know, you won't, you won't mess it up. There's not a structure. It's your structure and God's structure. And he'll, you know, he'll, like, uh, like in the beginning, I think it's in the beginning of Acts, like you'll, you'll find the words, like the, the words will be given to you nice. uh, in, in that situation. And when you're talking to God, it's amazing that, um, you know, God's really talking to you more so than you're talking to God. <laughs> right. So that's, uh, October something of 2000. I, I prayed a clumsy prayer and became a Christian. <laughs> that's fascinating. Interesting. I love, I love your Jewish perspective on Jesus too. Cause I, I think that's really interesting. Somebody recently introduced me to the concept of Havruta. Do you know what I'm talking mm. about? Like, which I guess is like having a, uh, like a, a intellectual sparring partner. You can think of it oh. as the way, is the way I thought of it. Yeah. Um, and it was just really interesting. And I, so it made me wonder, I guess maybe Jesus didn't have those real. And I don't know if they had, no, he did actually. Him. Did he, would you say that? Yes, absolutely. So, okay. So this is another thing that might sound alien to folks who grew up in the church. When I read Jesus's encounters with the Pharisees, not the Sadducees and the scribes, yes. mind you, but the Pharisees, it, it sounded a lot more to me like the conversations that rabbis were having with each other, great rabbis were having with each other that are now documented in the collection of books called the Talmud. 
Yes. So there's a certain section of it where it's an account of this rabbi said to this rabbi, and sometimes they were contemporaries, but sometimes a rabbi was talking to another rabbi from 200 years prior. Wow. Uh, so they wrote it down and they were heated. I mean, around the time of Jesus himself, there was Hillel and Shammai who yeah. were, I mean, it made Republicans and Democrats look like they were, you know, lions and lambs sitting down together. So, yeah, so that's, and there's a whole other conversation to be had there because I, I really object to a lot of the treatment, how we speak of Pharisees or how, especially how they're depicted in a lot of passion plays that I've right. seen. But I think the Pharisees and Jesus were, um, I don't know if you could say friendly sparring partners, but I think those, those conversations were heated in a the theological sense because he could, he, he maybe identified with them more closely than he identified with Sadducees or, or even Essenes or Zealots or some other groups of that time. Right. So, yeah, it's a fascinating offshoot of conversation. It, I don't want to go down it that is road. Interesting. We don't have to go down that too much, but I, that is fascinating that you see that as well. Because it was just, if, as he was describing it to me, I went, oh, that does sound very, and this is exactly what I thought, very much like what he was doing with the with the Pharisees. And I think you're right. We sometimes give the Pharisees a lot of, a lot of junk over, you know, what their position, but they also were the, the faithful right? They were the ones that were trying to live up to what God had said to do. Yeah. And so that's, they were taking it very literally, very much like some of our contemporaries. So yeah. that's, uh, that's just the way it is. Um, anyway, interesting. So that's, that's super fascinating. And sometimes we got to take that, take a little more Jewish approach to scripture. I think it helps. Um, okay. So you read the Sermon on the Mount and you're, you're finding Jesus and this is kind of answering some of your questions and you give your life to Christ does Hal mentor you from there? Or like, what else, what, how does, how does that go? And uh, where does that take you? You know, I just realized that I probably talk about this guy, Hal Golden uh, too much when I, when I share this story, <laughs> because it gives, it gives folks the impression that there was one person that yeah. was basically responsible for quote unquote, leading me to the Lord. And I, I think not to take any credit away from Hal for his mentorship of me, he certainly deserves a great deal of credit, but the mistake that I want to avoid is ever thinking that I could lead anybody to the Lord or any individual human being could lead somebody to the Lord. The truth is, in my story, there was an army of God's mm -hmm. people that were leading me to him that were, or I would say, leading me into the continuation of the story. Yep. You know, there were certainly discontinuations, like the whole Jesus resurrection thing is discontinuation from how I was brought up. Uh, but there, the point is, there was a whole, a whole group of people, dozens, if not hundreds of people who were either praying for me or having conversations or just taking me to a ball game. That's another conversation we got to have, by the way, the ball game, the whole St. Louis Cardinals. Thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not everybody's perfect, Eric. So, you know, I'll, I'll forgive you that for, for now, but. Uh, no. Well, second most World Series wins. That's all I need to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And and a few in the a couple in the eighties were particularly heartbreaking um, <laughs> right. for me as a Mets fan. But uh, no, a lot of respect for those teams. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, just it was it was a whole group of people. So, were there any significant moments that were like you know that stand out to you as you're developing and you're realizing, oh, this is what Jesus is all about. This is what that means for my life. Those kinds of things. I would say that there were a number of different ones at different times because if we have a life in the body of Christ, you know, there's, there's seasons to life and there are challenges to one's faith. And a lot of times the, the nature of uh, being a, a truth seeker, a question asker and a truth seeker mm. is that you, when you think you're just about arriving at an answer to one of your central questions, you realize it's not really an answer so much as the opening of a hundred more questions right. <laughs> by way of answering the prior one. So they don't call it a can of worms for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, it was more like Pandora's box. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. So I, I think the discovery of certain scholars was very, very helpful. Discovering, for example, uh, Tom Wright's work was really, really helpful for me. And yeah. there's, he has um, uh, two different, categories of his work so some of his work is is like um is it simply christian 
was that one of the central ones of the more popular books that he wrote? But there are like, you know, 150, 200 page books that he writes that are more accessible. And then there's these, the bigger volumes that he writes from like more academic type work. And even though I'm not an academic, I I felt compelled to tackle those because I, I wanted to hear him interact with other scholars and, and you know, the first of those volumes, New Testament and the People of God, really yeah. helped me imagine myself more fully in the first century and probably having a very similar conversation with my uh, imaginary parents of first century Israel as I had in 20th, 21st century, uh, you know, New Jersey, New York. Um, you know, saying, imagining going home, you know, and saying, uh, Mom, Dad, there's this uh, Nazarene named uh, Yeshua ben Yosef, and I think he's he's the one. I think he is at least the, um, uh, you know, the great rabbi of the time. I, I think he may be Messiah. I'm going to follow this guy. And there being great objection, he couldn't possibly be Messiah. The hills are still here. They're not flattened out. And, you know, um, similar to the conversation I had when I went to my New York Jewish parents and said, I'm a Christian, <laughs> you know, and how, how that went. Yeah. How, so, how did that go? Oh, it was great. It was awesome. Let's have some tuna fish and talk about it. I'm happy. No, it went nothing like that. Um, No, it was, uh, well, my mom's, my mom's response was pretty funny. She, she responded in the way, if you've ever seen the the sitcom, uh, everybody loves Raymond, the mother on that show. If you could imagine her reacting to to news like this, that's how my mother (laughs) reacted. She was like, I I don't know what to say. My son is walking with Jesus. What does this mean? Are you a born again Republican now? Like, what is this? She didn't know what to say. <laughs> I, okay, uh, I love, I'm laughing because I did not know. Like, you watch Seinfeld or you watch, you know, some of those shows, and you get this impression. And you're like, that's got to be a caricature. Right? No, it's got to be. And then my wife and I had this impre- experience. We were babysitting for this couple when we were young and in our 20s, right? And uh, we didn't have kids yet. And we were, and we babysit them from like almost every Saturday, but then they had a wedding and they're like, come to the, you know, come to the hotel and you can watch the kids and we'll pay you. And I was like, sweet. Okay. So we did that. And we're sitting there on this couch while before everybody was like leaving to go to the party and they were kind of dropping off the kids and these two older Jewish ladies, right. Are sitting on the couch behind us and they're having a conversation. And it was just like that. Oh, I don't know. Can you believe she wore that? Whatever. Like that thing. That's my, my impression is terrible. And my, I looked at my wife and we just started like trying not to laugh so much because it sounded like Seinfeld. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it is not a caricature. It is true. Uh, I'd like them to like have uh, dojos for, for Jewish guilt, the way they have dojos for martial arts. Cause my mother would be like a fifth degree black belt in Jewish guilt. She's like, yeah, she's incredible. Um, so my dad was very different. He, um, his initial response was very analytical, very reserved. But a month after we had like a two hour conversation, because he was just asking me questions. And I could tell that he was having a reaction, but he was reserving. He, he, he um, vocationally, he was, uh, uh, he was a guidance counselor and um, mm. counseled kids and his uh, conflict resolution specialist. So that informed his immediate uh, response. But a month later, he sent me literally a 10-page single-spaced letter. And it included all of the reasons why I can't, I mustn't, I should not ever become a Christian. Wow. And it was like every angle, like he, he has a little bit of background in history. So his historical angle, psychological angle, filial obligation, emotional, just every, every angle that you could imagine. But I took it as an opportunity because I was already reading. Uh, I was already reading C.S. Lewis. I was I was already learning from uh, Ravi Zacharias, and again, that's a whole. We now have a whole other part of that story, but right. uh, but he was very his his work and who he was influenced by was very influential for me uh, at that time. So I was drawing upon this new these new skills that I was learning. Uh, and, and a new mission that I was on in order to engage with my father in a meaningful way. Um, so I basically responded, I started responding to him paragraph by paragraph, and then it became a much longer conversation that went on for years because he was responding to my responses, which I then had to respond to. And it just, it just went on and on for, for about three years on. By letter? Uh, letter and email. 
Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I started responding to him via email. Uh, and um, yeah, it, I one time about three and a half years into the conversation, I printed out all the emails and I shared it with uh, pastor, the main pastor at our church. It was thick, man. It was about 150, 200 pages. Wow. Uh, and um, yeah, it was, but it, you know, in a lot of ways it led to what I'm doing now in that what we discovered was there were times when we, when we fell into the temptation of there, there's this common temptation to turn those things into the rhetorical equivalent of a tennis match mm-hmm. and to like, you know, do the perfect volley, the perfect backhand and, and think that, okay, game over kind of a thing. That is not how that goes. And it, it was actually my, to my dad's credit where he initially was going to do what's called sitting Shiva for me. Uh, his, his first inclination was yeah. to do what Jews do. Uh, it's a ritual that we go through when someone in the immediate family dies. And to his credit, why, why he wrote that letter? Yes, he did not want me to become a Christian, but it was an early, I don't know, instinct in him that said, my relationship with my son is more important than even winning something as a point as important as this. And he, he might not have articulated that way at that time, but that's what we discovered over time is that we're not really going to convince each other of anything. There's not the, the perfect comeback that is going to convince anyone to turn 180 degrees. I can't, even the most brilliant apologist can't do that. Or at least the, that, that seed, if you will, to, to draw upon the image that, that Jesus uses uh, it is not planted. It's not, it doesn't, it's not going to have deep roots. It's not planted in good soil. Um, So, but we could persuade each other bit by bit over time, but more importantly, what we were doing is uh, to to draw the imagery out just a little bit too much, but we we were fertilizing the soil of our relationship. Yeah. And, and as long as we were in the relationship, we, we, we were still in the game, you know? So anyway, um, drawing this out a little bit too much, but uh, those are the, some of the things that come to mind when, when you ask me about that. Yeah. I love that. That's a, that's a really interesting reaction. And it sounds like it probably drew your relationship closer rather than divided it. Yeah. It definitely enriched our relationship uh, over time. I mean, don't get me wrong. There was a lot of conflict. It was very fraught about six months after I became a Christian, our first kid was born. And when we went back for a baby naming ceremony, it, for me, it was a way to build the bridge back uh, to, to welcome my family and say, hey, we're still a family. Uh, and that visit was particularly tense because it was still very much in the air. And these differences were very much in the air. But over time, it, it was just, I, I'll say this, that my my understanding of Jesus and the people who follow Jesus and what we're doing in God's larger plan is much more nuanced, much more rich than a lot of people I go to church with because I've had to do think about it. My, my faith and my suppositions have been questioned more so than a lot of folks I go to church with. But at the same time, my dad's understanding of Jesus is much more nuanced than just about any non-Christian yeah. Jew I know. <laughs> right. You know, he he's, he has this um he has this understanding of Jesus. Uh, I forget what year. It must have been about 2012, 2014, somewhere around there. I said, Dad, well, so what do you think of Jesus? Like, where, where are you at? He goes, Well, I think I'm mad at the non-Christian Jews uh, because. <laughs> He had, okay, let me start at the beginning. He, he said, I think that Jesus was definitely a prophet, very much in the spirit of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, all of the prophets that we understand from the Hebrew Bible. I think that he was a Messiah. He, I forgot the Jewish word for the Hebrew word for it, but I mentioned the, the I referred to the great rabbi of the generation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so there is a, every generation has like a very prominent rabbi. He thinks that Jesus could have, and should have been the great rabbi of his generation. And he goes, and I think he was a Messiah candidate, but a failed Messiah candidate. I'm like, all right, yeah, you know, okay. Interesting. But here, here's, what's interesting about that last part. I asked him again, a couple of years later, 
and he said, uh, yeah, I, I think that he was a prophet in the spirit of he, you know, our prophets. I think he was the great rabbi of his generation. And I think he was, he was a Messiah candidate who was a failed Messiah candidate, but the failure was not his. The failure was the failure of the people of his generation, the people of Israel of his generation. Getting close. Isn't, isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, you're kind of right. <laughs> like, how can I argue with that? <laughs> Inching toward the, toward the, yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And making that leap to son of God might be a little bit, that's <laughs> yeah. a little further, but that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Really fascinating. So you guys, maybe you kind of inter- answered this already. I was wondering how that shaped you. It sounds like you, you have had to wrestle uh, with the truths of the faith in oh, just a deeper way. And so you kind of have a different sort of foundation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, and I was brought up in public school. You know, I, I mean, I went to Hebrew school my whole life in Hebrew high school, in addition to my regular American education. So I, I was ensconced, like, I almost envy people who are like, yeah, Bible says it. I believe it. End of story. You don't need to talk about it anymore. <laughs> you know, so they read Genesis one and two and you're like, yep, six little 24 hour days. We're good to go. Um, that's just not <laughs> right. where I'm from. You know, so uh, frankly, I, I think there's a lot of those things. Like I live in the same valley as John MacArthur and Masters University and all that. And I don't know there's a lot of those things that I just I don't think are central or primary or even secondary. You know, that yeah. that one I in, in particular, I just I always imagine my people at the foot of Mount Sinai, listening to the very voice of God and God's voice booming. And in the beginning, God, you know, I created yeah. and, and, you know, when he comes to the word day, I guarantee you, however many people were there, I know it's 600,000 or so of, of uh, men of fighting age, but it's always probably about 2 million people total. I guarantee you, my people, 2 million of them, not a single one said to themselves, I wonder if he's talking about a literal 24 hour day. So to me, it just says, that's not kind of the point of Genesis 1 and 2. Anyway. But they're totally. are. <laughs> yes. Because in the if you give me in the beginning, God, like it, the rest, like it, it's the rest of it is kind of simple, you know. But there are points where the supernatural, the miraculous, you do have to draw that line and say, yeah. Like we were talking about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's right. pretty miraculous, I would argue, you know. So, so, but stuff like that, like my American education brain is trained to be skeptical of stuff outside of the natural order just doesn't happen. You know, so reckoning with number one, a philosophical uh, um, lens set of lenses to understand that how this could be possible. And number one, it couldn't be possible inside of a closed universe. So then, okay, is it a closed universe or an open universe where there's a create the possibility of a creator God and a creator God, not just being this deity off far and away, but a creator God that can actually act inside of his creation on selected occasions. So those, those are some of the types of questions, but um, man, you keep on asking me questions that make me go off on these rabbit trails. So I apologize (laughs) if I'm taking a few left turns here. It's all right, Corey. That's my job is to ask questions (laughs) that make people think. So that's, I love that. But I do want to, I'm sure there's a lot of other, of other things. I'm going to ask you just at least a couple other questions and then uh, I want to talk a little bit about your podcast and kind of what you're doing with that, because it's pretty interesting. And we actually connect over that in some interesting ways that I want to share with you. So, um, but the, so the one thing I like to ask uh, is I always ask about the dark night of the soul and whether or not you had a time when you felt like God was far away or distant after you came to faith uh, and maybe what you learned about yourself during that. That's a pointed question. I, so. I would say that I never felt that God was far away so much as I was far away from the people of God and the darkest times. Uh, there's one morning that uh, comes to mind and it, we, Lisa and I had gone on a retreat with a bunch of couples that we were in a Bible study with. And this has happened frequently. It happened pretty shortly after I became a Christian. I have found myself reading scripture and taking scripture at its word as authoritative and finding that there were these other things of importance to the people I was going to church with that seemed contrary to what I was reading in scripture. And one of those issues was um, 
immigration, uh, Leviticus 19. Uh, and it came up on this retreat. We I got one of the guys read from the top of that chapter. And I'm like, hey, guys, can we read the rest of that chapter? He read like half of a verse from the top of the chapter and said, yeah, so, you know, this whole closed border thing, that's kind of the way. I'm like, hey, can we read the rest of the chapter? Because I think it's going to say something very different if we just read another few verses. And um, I probably did it in such a way that wasn't nearly as winsome as the ideal. Uh, so that that next day, and we did a few others that I just, it just, it occurred at least two other times throughout our conversation that night where I'm like, let's just, can we just keep reading? Cause I think a, bu a bunch of those guys, let's just, I'm just going to put out there a bunch of those guys were really hardcore conservatives, Rush Limbaugh fans. And I kept on bumping up against some things that were just at odds with what scripture was indicating. And, and I just said, Hey, what's more important to us that we are loyal listeners and fans of Rush Limbaugh, or that we're faithful to this authority to, called scripture, called God's word. And again, I sometimes being, you know, a kid from Jersey, I, I don't, I come across more like a, <laughs> you know, more like a, a jerk than, you, than a, well, a you're wise. Well, you ask those questions and say, hey, what's, what's up, right? Yeah, yeah. So that, though, but, but when the, the next morning, when I, I, I just said, Lee, we got to leave. It was, uh, we had another night or two to, to be there, but it was clear that I was not welcome there. I was uh, that my, whether it was the way I went about it or just bringing up these, these challenging questions of like, Hey guys, what is more important to us being faithful to the word or being, you know, loyal now, nowadays, like red hat wearing like what, and when it comes at odds, which, which one are we going to choose? So those were, I've come across a bunch of those over the course of the last 20 years uh, instances. And those, those are always the hardest. Those yeah. to me, because I, I feel like I'm being ostracized um, for not wearing the right jersey, for not right. wearing the right hat, as opposed to being, you know, unfaithful to scripture. So, yeah, but that, that faithfulness to scripture and the God's word itself does give me a mooring that, you know, it's, it's pretty sure. <laughs> so. Yeah, not not to be cocky about it because that's not my place, but but that that's what kept on bringing me back is, is that you know as much as the individuals may be um, kicking me out of the club, uh, I do have God's word that that is a very very strong foundation. So absolutely, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. That's really interesting. I it fascinates me. I think we're back to kind of worldview a, a little bit. You know, we we think about. Um, you know, I, for a long time, I was in that sort of same, same kind of camp where I would probably be more discipled by talk radio than by my pastor or scripture or anything else. And I think that's a huge problem in the United States and the American church right now. And part of it is uh, we just, our pastors aren't able or willing to have those conversations, right? And they're just not able to, um, to go there too busy putting on an event um, that's painting with a broad brush. I know that's not all pastors, but that's, that's definitely the observation that, that I have. Uh, so you actually, so I've made this a good place to like just transition a little bit and talk about your, your podcast, because you're kind of doing, um, some of this talking politics and religion without killing each other is the show. And, uh, so tell me a little bit about the, the impetus for that and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's a great way to ask that question. The impetus is because I found myself making every mistake in the book and trying to have conversations about important issues. You know, and and listen, it's easy to be dismissive and say, well, it's not polite to talk about politics and religion. Uh, but I, I just think that's a mistake because politics and religion encapsulate how we can live together, whether it's just around our Thanksgiving table with family. Uh, whether it's around the soccer field in our community with where, where our kids are playing soccer, whether it's at our church, why shouldn't we be able to have conversations about big, important issues about how to do this thing of living together neighbor to neighbor well? So what I found is I mentioned that story about kind of getting kicked out of the, the yeah. retreat. Um, and, and it wasn't the first time or last time that I was kicked out of a Christian <laughs> gathering. But it, it, it to me, what I realized was 
I don't care about uh, immigration policy as much as I care about how we're talking about it with each other. You know, there, there was a certain point where I realized, and it, it was really Sarah Palin, like a lot of my uh, friends from church were really enamored with Sarah Palin. She has a lot of, uh, she, she's a talent, she has a number of talents and uh, very, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, she, she had certain talents, but I, I just did not find her to be a great representative yeah. of the body of Christ and nor to be able to articulate um, really sound conservative. I'm, I'm a, uh, I guess I'm Burkean or uh, William F. Buckley type conservative at heart. Um, and, and so she wasn't a great representative of that type of political philosophy either. And I realized, well, what do I object to? Because some of the, some of the um, Bush's, uh, excuse me, some of McCain's policies that he was advocating for were some, a platform that I could really get behind politically. So what is it? And at the end of the day, it wasn't so much about, about the policies themselves as much as how we're engaging with each other to arrive at conclusions. And not only that, how we're seeing folks who we think disagree with us. Yeah. You know, if I think somebody disagrees with me about uh, policies locally and statewide that affect small businesses, that, that's my turf, if you will, and minimum wage, for example, if somebody disagrees with me about minimum wage, I am not going to take that one point of difference or that one data point and then arrive at all these other conclusions and draw this, you know, caricature of a picture of that person. I want to, the, the way that my uh, state assembly member engaged with me, I disagreed with her. Uh, I was not in favor of raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour at that point, because I thought it would end up costing jobs. And I wanted a small business owner to be able to um, to be have more of a meritocracy. I had a lot of reasons for it, but my current uh, assembly member, my assembly member at the time really disagreed with me. To her credit, she brought me onto her small business committee. And we still disagreed at least three quarters, if not 90% of the time. But again, to her credit, the 10% or 25% that we did agree upon, my, my language that I was bringing up in committee made it into legislation that she was advocating for. That's a better way to do it than for her to yeah. see me as some, you know, rolling in, in you know, $100 bills, uh, bad guy who just wants to take advantage of, of marginalized people, you know, or me looking at her and saying, oh, you just want to take all my money and, and distribute it as you see fit. And that's just a very bad way to, to do rhetoric or to engage with people that we have some differences with. So long story short, I saw that as the problem, not yeah. any particular policy issue or theological position. So over time, the way I was talking with my dad about these central theological family issues, I thought we got to figure out ways of taking this converse, these types of conversations back from extremists, from people who are committed to hyperbole, from people who are more committed to mischaracterizing folks that they disagree with, generalizing folks that they disagree with, and demonizing folks that they disagree with, and taking some of that space back in the public square so we can have better conversations and maybe learn something from each other. Not that we have to agree. I still disagree with raising the minimum wage to whatever it's going to end up being. I still disagree. So we don't have to agree on everything, but being able to understand each other better and maybe find some common ground so I, I, you know, or, or, or if nothing else to rehumanize people that we might disagree with instead of dehumanizing them. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's, that, that's what the, uh, that's what the whole project is all about. That's fascinating. And I think so good, man, it seems to me like if we could just adopt that posture, um, of you are a fellow human being and we don't have to agree on everything, but we do have to work together, right? Like, that our world will be a better place. Like that's easy for me to say, right. For in my, in my basement in Denver, but it's, I think it really is true. I would love to see, this is why all the political movies where it's like the one guy gives the inspiring speech. That's basically what he always says, right. Is it, yeah. we can work together because that's the thing that we have, we have to do, right. Like there's, right. there's, well, we, all right without bringing up topics, but there's things happening now where there's actually some compromise and I'm kind of happy to see that every, you know, like that's how things get done. They don't get done yeah. because one party imposes their will. They get done when people say, okay, let's, let's figure this out, hash it out. You want this. I want this. How can we do it? 
But he, here's here's the thing, and, and we don't have to talk about the particular policy because I read that there was some progress made this morning. But what what is the the greater effort is required to have that conversation internally with one's supposed own team? We, you know, not I, and I hate that I, way of thinking about it, like different yeah. teams, and you got to fight those other guys. And but a lot of times you have to go back and, and fight with the loudest, most obnoxious, extremist voices. Right. in your own supposed team, you know? So, and, and all parties have to be able to do that and yeah. say, you know, so, but, but here, here's the other thing is that I think a lot of us are looking just like in one conversation, we're looking for that one big comeback. That's going to change this person's point of view, 180 degrees. And they'll agree with us on everything from here on out. That's just not how things work. Right. You know, the, the way it works is, is one degree at a time, one conversation at a time, one person at a time. You know, and 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 that is that is ends up being much more fruitful as opposed to the one speech that's going to bring everybody together and get, you know it's it's just not going to be that way. You know, yeah. I can't change the world with the snap of a finger, but I can have an impact on this conversation at this moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I do. There, there's a, also a little bit of a spiritual discipline to that as well, right? There's an interesting. Uh, sense to that, that is we, you know, we, by staying present and being present to the person that is in front of us without having to score points or win the, you know, get the layup or whatever, that's, that maybe it's the same metaphor, but that, that, um, but that, that actually helps us, uh, see the humanity, right. And to take that and honor that in one another, um, which I think can do so much more than just, getting after each other. Eric, that's a very Jewish point of view. I'll have, you know, I think there, you. you might have it in you, man. You might have a little enough Jew in you to make you that much more interesting and, and spicy. I, I don't know. I will take that as a compliment because it is absolutely a compliment. Well, I was thinking of Heschel, a great non-Christian uh, Jewish theologian, mid 20th century. Uh, he does talk about that in his um, book, his essay on the Sabbath. He talks about the intersection of time and eternity is the present. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But, but there's something really profound to that. Like, Hey, listen, if you do want to do apologetics and you do want to convince somebody of something, the greatest proof that we have of the existence of God is that every moment is an act of creation. This yes. moment and this, nothing is guaranteed. So as we move forward through time, nothing is guaranteed, but every moment has to be created, right? Every moment is a new act of creation. So that's uh, I'm not going to try to win an argument that way, but What's your, what's your proof that God exists now and now and now? <laughs> right. Right. I love that, man. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? And it's a different way. It's just a different way of thinking than I certainly grew up with. So I'm, I'm really into that. Okay. Um, so I know what are, what, what are some of the principles or the ideas? What, what do we have to do? Like if you could give advice to, let's just say middle America, right wing, talk radio listener who's a Christian I'm not calling anybody out here but, but you know like if you could, if you could give them advice about how do I how do you approach uh politics as a Christian at, uh you know what would you tell them what would you what would you tell them to do well the first thing you have to do is forget about all of your prior loyalties and become a New York Mets fan and that's no. step number one <laughs> Why do they want to lose so much? I don't understand. <laughs> because being a New York Mets fan means you have character. It takes character to be a Mets fan. That's it. Yeah. Um, no. Okay. So I think that there are a few key things. One is to, to avoid the temptation or the proclivity, I should say, of learning one thing about the person you're talking to and drawing an entire narrative based on those one or two things. You know, this person, oh, big Obama supporter, whatever, big Biden supporter. You, you can't draw a narrative about that person based on one person that they voted for, even if they have the bumper sticker. Yeah. You know, so we, we all have that tendency to, to wh whether it's taking what shade skin that I have or what age I might be 
or what gender I identify as, even talking about it that way. Yeah. So uh, you, you brought it up or articulated better than I could is to re- remember the humanity of the individual. You know, in my case, you know, I, I, have, I have a story and I, I'm part of a bigger story. You know, when it comes to immigration, my family landed on Ellis Island on March 3rd, 1921. Wow. So, you know, and they came from Ukraine. They came from Chernyostrov, uh, Ukraine, Jews. So there's, there's a lot of different contemporary issues that I see through the lens of not just who I am, but who my family is and who my family has been. So understanding that there's a story there and you're probably writing the wrong one if you're writing it for them. Remember the humanity. Um, and along those lines, I think a really good tool, uh, if you remember one thing, remember the words, I'd love to understand, fill in the blank. Help me understand, fill in the blank. Could you help me understand why you think that way? Could you help me understand why that is important to you? Could you help me understand how you're connecting those things together? You know, just help me understand. If they're giving you the pleasure of having the coffee or the beer or the whatever, you know, cheesecake with you, you know, th- then you're in the conversation. So help me, as opposed to, you know, like we, we've been talking about, as opposed to saying like, look, here in Isaiah 40, and then we're going to keep on reading until we get to 55, and then there, you're convinced. That's just not going to do it. I know right. it's profound for those of us who defer to the, you know, scripture as our authority. That makes a lot of sense. But to somebody who's just at most reading it the way they might read, you know, Tolstoy's War and Peace, they're like, you're, you're proving this point later in the book by pointing to this point early, and that just doesn't make sense to me, and sorry, and, you know, so help me understand is a good one. Uh, another good tool along those lines is feel felt found. So when you do come to a point of grave disagreement, try to force yourself to go feel felt found. I understand why you'd feel that way. And then make yourself say, man, I think, I guess I felt, I would have felt the same way if I was in that situation. Here's what I found. If you're going to have an answer, if you're going to have a retort, that might be a good framework mm, within which to, to feel felt found. I understand why you feel that way. I would have felt the same way if I was in that position. Here's what I found. And then um, <laughs> the other thing is just stay in a conversation, you know, just stay in a conversation because the relationship <laughs> is, is going to take precedence over any individual point that you make. So let's say somebody asks you something that really stumps you. I think that's a gift because the gift is you have the opportunity to say, I have no idea. That is a great question. Can I come back to you with that? I, I want to look that up. I want to do some research. I'd love to get, I'm, literally tonight, I'm going out for a beer with a buddy on exactly those grounds. I'm like, dude, I have no idea. Can I take, can I buy a beer? Like, I'd love to talk to you more about this, there you, you know? And so it, it keeps you in the conversation. It keeps you in the relation. And the last thing I'll say um, the last thing I'll say about that, and this is the hard one, is we, we always want to be right. The thing is, when you want to enter into an extended conversation and have some influence or maybe be persuasive, it means that you open yourself up to the possibility of being persuaded. And that's dangerous. But the thing is, if we stand on the truth, the truth is still going to be true. So I, I mentioned N.T. Wright, just to give you an example, I mentioned N.T. Wright before. He entered as a vocational historian, he entered into the project of doing history on first century Israel, risking the possibility that some of his theological underpinnings would be shaken. Right. But, you know, he came out the other side having so much more of a nuanced understanding of first century Israel, of Jesus, of the, the third volume on the resurrection blew my mind. It rocked my world. You know, and then his work, his next two volumes on Paul. I mean, I know Johnny Mac doesn't, you know, objects to it, but that's because Johnny Mac's theology is crusty, man, and and it's it's like cement that's falling apart. I'm sorry, if there's. A, I'm sorry. No, yeah, that's I, great. I'm with you, I, man. I, I, but I, I play golf with Johnny Mac, so Johnny Mac and I have this. Uh, oh, really? You know, yeah. Um, so he's he's a good guy to hang out with, and and I know that there's some things in the in the news these days that really yeah. But again, another conversation I brought up Ravi Zacharias, I brought up Johnny. Well, Mack. yeah, man, all the hard things. Well, but that's okay. So yeah, what's uh, it's interesting. 
Right, so well, just to good. just to put a pin uh, yes. in that for a second, again, it's risking the possibility that you will be persuaded as well. Just the, so the same way that my understanding of Jesus is much more nuanced than a lot of people I go to church with, as my dad's is much more nuanced about Jesus, and he's closer to an understanding of Jesus as Messiah than anybody he does he davens he goes to synagogue with. Um, that's that's the thing, and and you can risk it. Because if you believe something that's true, it's still going to be true. You know, and again, maybe this is for another conversation in the future, but like I mentioned Ravi as a mentor, what really, I talk about despair, when when all this stuff, my mentor, my friend, when all this stuff came out after he passed away, I was still mourning for the, the, the loss of my friend when I learned about all this stuff. But uh, Dr. Russell Moore said something very wise. I, I was blessed to have a direct conversation with him at perfect, at perfect time wow. in where I was. And he said, Corey, you know, uh, the phrase about apologia came, apologetics came up, um, it, you know, be ready to make, make a ready defense for the hope that's within you with uh, gentleness and respect, that whole thing. He said, Ra what, whatever Ravi did, it's terrible, the tragedies, and, you know, we have to understand, but that verse isn't any less true. Mm, yeah. Those truths aren't any less true. What you, much of what you learned with him, perhaps even by him, isn't any less true. And and by the way, he's not Jesus. <laughs> Ravi's not Jesus. So I'm I'm not trying to take away from the tragedy that is, and 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 the victims that 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 need to be given succor to, um, and you know reckoning with with the tragedy. But it doesn't make God's word any less true. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. Well, there's a lot we could we could dive into. I really appreciate you, Corey, uh, sharing some of your uh, story with us. And I'm sure we we missed a whole bunch of parts because I still don't know how you got in with all these guys, like all these amazing amazing people. Um, but I'd love to hear that story sometime. Your podcast is called uh, Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Politics and Religion. Us. Uh, anything else you want to leave us with? politicsandreligion.us. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the easiest way to find us. Love go. it. Love that. Uh, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm.